Good morning, everybody. If you do not know me, my name is Seth, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Valley, and I'm really glad for you to be here with us this morning for multiple reasons. One, as we continue our study in Acts, uh, we've been walking through Acts for a period of time now, but also as we celebrate Hudson's baptism here in just a little bit. So, so glad you're here this morning. So please grab your Bibles, turn with us to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 19 through 30. We've been walking through Acts for a while, but to give us some context for this week, um, if you weren't here last week, what we covered was Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18, and we saw how God changes our beliefs, right? Our understanding of God and His Scripture and His Word are not complete. They're not all perfect, right? First of all, our beliefs don't always align with truth, right? We've seen that in Acts with Peter, right? We see how his beliefs were, in, were changed, right? That Judaism, right, the Jewish faith, and its understanding and its customs and traditions were not necessary for salvation with Christ. Also, we see that our beliefs must be shaped by God's Word, and that is what we try to do here, specifically at Church of the Valley. Anything we do with our kids, anything that you hear from up here, we want it to be straight from God's Word. And then finally, as we understand God's Word, our beliefs must submit to the Word. Right, we can understand the word all day long, but if we don't submit to its authority, then we're fooling ourselves, right? If we hear God's word and yet we don't do what it says, uh, one day Christ may look at us and say, I never knew you, which is pretty strong, right? We see that straight from Matthew chapter 7. So, anyways, this morning, Acts eleven nineteen through 30, what I want us to see, what I want us to see is God's will is unfolding. Right? God's will for his people, God's will for the church is unfolding just like he said it would. Right? So turn with me really quick to Acts chapter 11, 1931. I mean 19 through 30, but we're going to read 19 through 21 first. We're going to start there and kind of work our way to the end of this chapter. But the first point I want us to see in 19 through 21 is God is building his church. God is building his church. So read with me verses 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed Turned to the Lord. So the beginning of this section in Acts chapter 11 brings us back to Acts chapter 6. Sorry, not Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 8. I think that's right. It's earlier in Acts than we are right now. Um, where Stephen is stoned. Okay, Stephen stands before the council. He proclaims Christ, and then he is stoned for his beliefs. And then what happens? The church is scattered because of this persecution. They're scattered in fear that this may happen to them. So initially we look at this and we go, man, like the church is scattered, they're no longer together. This must be a win, right, for the adversary. This must be a win for Satan working against the church, right? So following Stephen's death, they're sent to, they scatter all to the um, far parts of the earth, right, to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. So first of all, Phoenicia, this is present-day Lebanon, this is north of Jerusalem. 
Cyprus. This is uh, an island nation. It's about 100 miles off the coast. This is northwest of Jerusalem, northwest of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. But where we find ourselves today is Antioch. This is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So Antioch was a major city, major metropolis for paganism, all different types of religions. Uh, This was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time, about 500,000 people. So here, I mean, still 500,000 people in a city is large, but back then it was huge, it's humongous. So in some sense, Antioch represented diversity, right, of nations and languages and people and religions. Antioch was a good representation of the world. Right? And we've seen earlier in Acts that the gospel has already started going out to the world, as Christ said it would back in Acts chapter 1. But God is going to use a city such as this, a city that some of us would maybe looked at like then, or p- pick a city in your mind that, like, there's no way that this city could be used for the advancement of the gospel to the nations. God is about to use such a city as the center point for sending out people to the nations with his word. So, right here, as God is building this church, I want us to see that God's will triumphs over persecution. Like I said just a couple seconds ago, the church is being persecuted. Stephen is stoned, and then they are dispersed to multiple different nations away from one another. During my study this week, I read a good quote from J.I. Packer in the Crossway Classic commentary about this dispersion. Now, what I want us to see here is that what Satan does to destroy the church, what Satan does causing doubt in our hearts, causing doubt in one another here in the church, confusion, driving us against each other, and what Satan was doing here in the stoning of Stephen to destroy the church ultimately is used by God in his sovereignty to advance the church and advance his will. I'm going to read a quote for us really quick. It should be on the screen. With the church thus torn in pieces, fear or the contempt of foreigners caused those who had fled to be silent. But Luke says that something happened for which no one could have hoped. Seed was sown in order to produce a harvest. So it was that the gospel which had been kept in one city like being kept in a barn was now scattered in faraway nations. And so the name of Christ came over mountains and seas to the farthest parts of the world. If so many believers had not been expelled from Jerusalem, Cyprus and Phoenicia and Italy and Spain would have never heard nothing of Christ. So church, the picture I want us to get from here is that in our lives, when we think things are you know, dragging us down, we feel like the world is against us, Those are not times where God is unable to work. Those are the times where God arguably works most in shaping us to be more like his son. And bringing us into holiness and perfection was what he desires for us, righteousness. And he does that through the spirit that dwells in us as believers, and he does that through his word. So, then we get to verse 20. You have men of Cyprus and Cyrene. So they're scattered about, they go to these different nations... And they're preaching the gospel faithfully, but they're doing it just to Jews, just like Peter was in Acts chapter 10 before God corrected his understanding that the gospel was not just for the Jewish people, it was for all nations. The hope that is found in Christ is not just for one nation. It's like it said in this quote, to be kept in a barn all to itself. So 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, faithful men, feel this longing to take the gospel to the Hellenists. So we saw back in Acts chapter 6, this term Hellenists meant Greek-speaking Jews that were dispersed from Jerusalem. Well, here, the use of it and the context surrounding it really means more Gentiles, those of different nations, those not of the Jewish background. So we see that the church at Antioch was born, was birthed by intentional proclamation of the gospel to the unreached. Intentionally seeking them out, like we saw Friday night as we gathered to study in the book of Jonah. Intentional proclamation of the gospel to the unreached. And they realized that this was an urgent mission. This was not something they could just put aside, right, thinking somebody else will do it. No, that is not the mindset that we should have with the commandments that Christ has given us. And I like the outlook that they have specifically because Paul, who is about to come from Tarsus all the way over to spend time with them, to disciple them, this is Paul's outlook on ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 22. Paul says there, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by, me, that by all means I might save some. Verse 23, I don't think I have it on the screen, but I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So before Paul even arrives, these faithful men from Cyprus and Cyrene are adopting this idea of regardless of who it is, regardless of their background, regardless if we have nothing in common, we have nothing in common. We can't even talk about sports or whatever. I know they didn't have sports. Well, they may have had sports back then. I don't know. But regardless of their connection culturally or not, they could still give them the one hope that is found in Christ, the one thing that they needed the most. So, which begs the question, why did these men take such an abru- a seemingly abrupt turn to the Gentiles? Right? So majority of these people that were dispersed, they're preaching the gospel, but they're doing it to Jews only. So why did these men from Cyprus and Cyrene make, take this such abrupt turn? And I'm going to say it's because they were led by the Spirit to do so. We see in verse 21 this phrase, and the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. I did some reading on what this meant. And throughout Scripture, the hand of the Lord is used to refer to two different things. One, God's power and judgment. We see it back in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and and Joshua chapter 4. Specifically in Joshua chapter 4, the judgment that that came on God's people when they looked at the land that God had brought them to. Right? And God said, go into it, take this land. And they were nervous, right? Because there was this people there and they were much larger and bigger and stronger. And God said, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And because of your disobedience, right, this entire generation will pass and not go into the promised land. So God's power and judgment, but we also see God's power and blessing, right? So the hand of the Lord, this phrase is very common in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So blessing here was provided by God's hand through his people, the church, by the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in Antioch. Turn with me really quick to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read 7 through 10. So what is this blessing in the gospel 
that was brought to them. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 10. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in on heaven and things on earth. Church family, this is not a blessing that was just for these people back then. This was not a blessing that started all the way back with Abraham, right? That has only come to the people that live in the time that this was written. No, this is a blessing that God freely extends to all that will trust in Christ. All that will trust that we understand that in our sin, in our selfishness, in our self-focused nature, our sin separates us from a holy God, a holy, perfect God who cannot be in the presence of that. Will not, cannot, it goes completely against his character. But in our inability to come back to him, to restore the right relationship we see between man, woman, and God in Genesis chapter 2, the perfection of his creation was tainted with man's sin, putting aside God's word and seeking himself, seeking to make himself like God in knowledge and in understanding. So knowing that in our sin, there's nothing we can do to come back to our God. God looked on hopelessly sinful men and women and children in this world, and when we could not come to him, he came to us. See, that's what separates Christianity from every other religion in this world. Every religion, every mindset that you see in society tells, pushes you to self-improvement. Be good enough. Try hard enough. Church, you can't do it. I can't do it. There's no one in this world that can be good enough in their diligence, right? In their, right? Looking for a certain word. Um, we, can't, we can't be dedicated enough. We can't be committed enough to earn our salvation. There's a reason Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as dead. We are dead in our sin. Right? A dead person cannot raise himself or herself. A person that is blind to the truth cannot open their own eyes to see the truth. A person that is deaf can't all of a sudden make themselves hear. It is an act of God outside of us that brings us from death to life. And if you have not trusted in that like my faithful brother Hudson has, if you haven't done it, Please let today be the day that you trust in the work of Christ, the work that he has done at the cross so that we sinful men and women might be saved from our sin. But at the end of the section, I want you to see that God's will is unfolded as he builds his church, as he saves people from the Jewish background and people from the Gentile background. He saves his church his will is unfolded as he builds his church among the nations. Turn really quick from me to Psalm 46. I think sometimes we like to think, well, you know, we have the God of the Old Testament that was wrathful and mean and angry, and then we have this loving, nice God that gives us hope in the New Testament. First of all, wrong. It's not true. God is unchanging. 
He never changes like a song that we sing often here. He never changes. I can't sing it as well as Megan does, but when I'm in my car by myself, I'm a rock star, and I can (laughs) sing it really good. Psalm 46. His will that we see hundreds of years before, and it started from the beginning of time. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Church, that is God's will that he is doing here in his church. He promised it back then. He will be exalted among the nations. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you the moment that the church finishes taking the gospel to all those unreached people groups that have never heard his word or his name before, he will return as he promised. So continue with me in Acts chapter 11. We're going to read 20 through 26. And what I want you to see here is that, yes, God is building his church, but then he doesn't leave us, them and us. He doesn't leave us in our ignorance, right? I was meeting with Joe this week, and we read a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's not going to be on the screen, but it just came to my mind. Joe and I were talking about his divine power, verse 3, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I haven't looked up the Greek here, but I imagine all things in the Greek here means all things. Right? You can check me on that. That's fine. But his word, his power that he has given to us by his word and by his spirit, placing us when we believe, is for all things in our life. All things pertaining to our life and to godliness. So God here is equipping and encouraging his church. Read with me in 22 through 26. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was clad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You see, the church in Jerusalem, just like it happened in Samaria, right? And just like it happened in other places, they hear of God's words going forth. So they send someone kind of to investigate, right? Just to be sure it's the gospel that they know they received, right? And to see evidence of God's work there and then to encourage them. So the church sends Barnabas. Barnabas was a Hellenist himself, a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus. So they send somebody that he can... He's from these people's background, right? He can relate with them. So Barnabas, verse 20c, sees God's grace on display, right? Imagine seeing God's grace on display within a people. Well, what does that mean? I would say that means... Ephesians chapter 2, he has seen that people have come from death to life. Romans chapter 12, he has seen transformation in their understanding of God and his word. And then Galatians 5, he sees the fruits of the Spirit on display. Right When God transforms us from death 
to life, we have new life in Christ, there is evidence of our salvation. We can see how we have changed and others can see it in us as well. And then we see here in verse 23, his exhortation. He sees God's grace on display and then he encourages them, exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Well, for me, that begs the question, what purpose do all believers share? What purpose do all believers share? Well, God has made you, me, all people, and all things for his glory. You see, we like to look at things in our life and we like to elevate what we want and what we desire. But what we've been learning here, I would say, over the past year and what our kids have been learning as we do family worship at homes during the week and through our catechisms, we have learned that God has made you, me, all people, and all things for his glory. So, which begs another question, how do we glorify God? And I think my four-year-old can answer this, but I'm going to go ahead and answer this right now. By loving him and obeying his commands. So what commands has God given us? Luke chapter 9, when the disciples are wondering, how do I follow you? How do I follow you? Christ tells them, die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We walk, we're going through Luke in our community groups, and we walked through that a few weeks ago, what that looks like. Putting aside what we want, that doesn't mean you can't aspire to things in this world. But ultimately, our aspiration should be for God's glory. It should be that in our families, it should be that in our workplace, and it should be that as we go to the nations with his gospel. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, we're given the commandment to abide in Christ. Abide in, abide in me is the word that he uses. That means with all of your energy, with everything that I've given you to be and to do, seek him. Seek him and his word and knowledge of him. And then following that, 1 John chapter 2, we're given the, the command, do not love the world. Do not love what this world has to offer because ultimately it will let you down. We were talking to our brother Pradeep that was in town from Nepal this week. And one of our kids asked him, how do you share the gospel with people from a different religion? This would be people from a Hindu background. And he said he opens with very simple questions. Do you have peace in your life? Right? Do you have hope? Right? Does that peace and that hope do this? Does it fluctuate up and down? Why is that? That's because the world cannot ultimately satisfy you or me. It cannot, it will not, regardless of how long, how good of a stretch you've had going, ultimately, even our desires, we know ourselves, right? Ourselves let us down. Your wife will let you down. Right? Your work will let you down. And every other religion on this earth will let us down because it tells us, be good enough. And we can't. We can't be good enough. And then finally, Matthew chapter 28, the end of the book of Matthew, we get this great commission, right? Because all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Christ, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, right? So it doesn't just say, go and get a lot of conversions, right? Go and teach them and then say, okay, I'm, I'm glad you converted to Christ from Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever it may be, your atheism, your agnostic, and then just leave them in ignorance. No, teach them everything I've commanded you. 
everything I've commanded you. So God is equipping and encouraging his church through Barnabas here, and he's going to continue to do it through Saul. So Barnabas sees what's happening. He goes to Tarchus to get Saul, and then he brings him back. And they met for a year with the church and taught the church the truths of God's word. They met with him. There's fellowship here. We should not neglect meeting together. Right? I think there's a common understanding, even after COVID, that we can, you know, whenever we want to get up on Sunday, right, or whenever, or whenever we want to go to Bible study during the week, oh, it's been a tough day, or it's been hard, or I don't feel that great. I'm not dumping on you or me. I'm just saying that Scripture tells us in Hebrews that we should not neglect meeting together with the body of Christ. And if we do neglect that, if that is not a priority in our lives, People will miss. Things happen. I get that. But when we neglect it, that's when we're sinful. If Saul and Saul, Paul and Barnabas had neglected to meet with the church here, they would be sinful in not teaching and equipping the church for the mission that God had set out for them as the church at Antioch. So in Antioch, they, the disciples, were first called Christians. So the word Christian appears in the New Testament, I think, three or four times. It's just a handful. Um, but it's used as a derogatory term, right? It's used as, a, as a, a mocking term, a way of scoffing at them, at being little Christ. Oh, what a badge of honor to be called Christ-like. Um, so God's will is unfolded here as he's equipping and building his church Right? But God's will is unfolded for the church back then and for the church today, you and me, in the sanctification of his church. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul's aim in all the churches he connected with, in all of his traveling, in all of the struggle he went through in his life, being shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, right? His life was tried to be taken from him several times. What was his ultimate goal? To present everyone that he interacted with, all the people of God's church, mature in Christ. Right? Mature in their understanding of who God was and what the mission of the church was. So finally, point number three, we're going to be in verses 27 through 30 of Acts chapter 11. What the picture I want us to see here is that God, yes, has built his church and is building his church currently. He equipped his church through solid teaching, through faithful brothers and sisters. But now God is sending his church out. 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So these prophets that are coming down for Jerusalem to Antioch, these would just be teachers of the Old Testament. But these are people that God's Spirit is in them because they have trusted in Christ. And it says here that Agabus testifies, right? He prophesies by the Spirit, a great famine's coming, right? So this great famine actually happened in A.D. 45, right? So they had a few years' notice before this was going to happen. A.D. 45, so this is when... The, the Nile River flooded, and a lot of the world in this area and the food went out from Egypt. Egypt was a great um, place for, for farming and for harvest, but this flood greatly damaged the harvest of Egypt, which claw, caused this famine. But what I want you to see here is that the believers in Antioch right, display the fruit of their salvation in displaying mercy and generosity to those in need, and not just people in need. I want you to see this. The very people that doubted whether they could be part of God's church. The very people from Jerusalem that had so much pride in their Jewish faith and their Jewish background that they thought there's no way the Gentiles could come to Christ. These very people that culturally and, and socially looked down the Gentiles here in Antioch, God's church, looks at these people that initially, right, historically have hated them. Why do they support them? Why do they send food and help and need? It's because God had brought them from death to life. They are no longer who they were. They are new creations in Christ, and now they have the purpose of taking the gospel forth and, yes, encouraging and supporting the church, right? This was selfless. This was generous care for the corporate church. Despite cultural differences, geographical differences, they could say, hey, they're 300 miles away from us. It's, you know, that's a long way. You know, we're going you know, to step aside on this one, let somebody else take care of them. No, the Gentile church shows no partiality or distinction, but extends support and faith. And the first book of the Bible that we went through in our community groups, our small groups that meet, meet during the week was Ephesians. And what we see in Ephesians is that there's unity, right? Unmatched, almost ununderstandable unity that is found in the body of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. Unity is found in the body of Christ, but verse 4 reads this way, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the outlook that the church in Antioch had. So God's will finally is unfolded in the sending out of his church. And church, I just want to say, I think we learned some of this Friday night as we were going through Jonah. And honestly, it's been kind of part of what we've been talking about over the past year. It is time that we, the American church, wake up to the great spiritual and physical needs around us and around the world and spend our lives, our time, our resources supporting the global church in the advancement of God's glory. It is time we stop being so self-focused and wondering, you know, what big event are we going to throw next, right? What, what transformation? We don't have a church building, as you see. We meet here weekly. We don't own this. But if we ever have a church building, what great improvements can we do to all these things? No. 
Those things should be totally secondary of where can we send our money or our people or ourselves to the world. Here, so the world does include here. I'm not saying neglect your neighbors or neglect the need. We've learned very recently that there's a lot of need in this community. A lot of need with broken families, right? Addiction, poverty, need for food, right? That's something we don't think really exists, not here in in North Alabama, right? Yes, there's great need here. But also, there is great need around the world during Secret Church on Friday as we walk through the book of Jonah together, we learned about the church in Iran. The church in Iran is steadfast, right? And their understanding and their trust in God's word, but they are under great, excuse me, great persecution for their faith and trust in Christ. When you're born in Iran, you're told your religion's Islam. This is what your religion is, and you can't do anything else. And yet... The gospel is advancing amongst great persecution in Iran. Why? Because God's word is enough. God's word is what they need, right? God is building his church. God is encouraging his church. And God is now sending his church out here in Antioch, and he's doing it globally. May we take a moment and examine our lives to see great spiritual and physical needs around us and around the world and spend our time, our resources, focused on that, right? Church, I'm so glad you're here this morning um, as we continue through Acts chapter 11, but I just want to re-encourage you here at the end. If you're not a part of a church family around here, yes, we would love for you to fellowship with us, 100%, but our desire is for you to know Christ and to serve his church. If that's here, fantastic. If it's not, fantastic. Be involved somewhere where you can serve your church family and where you can take the gospel forth to one another, to the nations, and to our neighborhoods. Right? We have that mission. We cannot neglect it. And we hold each other accountable to that through our covenant here at Church of the Valley. So take a moment here. Pray with me. Thank you so much for being here this morning. God, I love you, and we love you, and we thank you for what you have done here in our church family, what you have built, and what we see that you built in Antioch. God, as you used faithful brothers and sisters to take your word where it had not gone. God, we thank you that your word, the power of your gospel, brings us from death to life. We thank you that your word transforms us into something we could never become ourselves. Lord God, and we thank you that it compels us to take this good word, the work that you have done and are currently doing as the good news to the world around us. Lord God, may we be corrected by your word this morning. May your word expose the sin in our lives. May we repent and turn to you.